so um, children often think they know what's good for them, but they're not always right. Now, I might be uh, speaking from personal experience, but I don't want to put too fine a point on it. So let's just say uh, you've got a child who is convinced that he can drive himself to school aged eight and a half. Uh, I think you probably agree that that would be fairly dangerous. Um, or maybe you've got a child who uh, thinks that life would be so much better if it was Christmas every day. Children, who thinks it would be better if it was Christmas every day? <laughs> a, a few, I reckon. But as, as adults, I think we can see the insanity-inducing potential of that. Uh, or you might have a child who would relish the opportunity to drink, uh, sorry, to uh, eat a car, uh, try that again, <laughs> who would eat a chocolate the size of a small car. Um, but I think we uh, can recognize that that would be nauseating and pretty messy when it melted. That if children always had things their way, it would be disastrous because they don't always know what's good for them. But you know what? The same is true of adults and communities, societies, and for humanity in general. Human beings are free to make their own choices independently of God. Uh, that is a level of freedom that God has given us. Uh, but we so often make awful choices, not just as individuals, but as whole nations. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the Jewish people thought they knew what was good for them. And today we're going to see a stark contrast between what the crowds wanted and what Jesus actually came to do. And it boils down to the difference between human wisdom and God's wisdom. So there's no doubt that Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king, a messianic king, no less. That is how the crowds saw him. He came into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground in front of Jesus. That would only ever have been done to honor a person of high rank and specifically a king. We see something like this happening in 2 Kings chapter 9 when Jehu is anointed king. It says, They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So we have a precedent for this laying down of cloaks in front of Jesus. And then we have the waving of the palm branches. Uh, we've been waving palm branches this morning. Actually, Luke doesn't mention the palm branches because he writes for a predominantly non-Jewish, a Gentile audience who won't really understand the significance of the palm branches. Uh, but we know the significance. There was um, a certain point in Jewish history. It's not recorded in the Bible because it comes between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You remember that period about... 400 years where God was silent, uh, there was no prophets, nothing written in terms of the scriptures. And at that time, 
Jerusalem was under the control of the Seleucids. Now, we don't really need to get into who they were, uh, essentially Hellenized Assyrians. But they were defeated by one Simon Maccabeus, who entered Jerusalem as a triumphant king. And on that occasion, the crowds were waving palm branches. So for the Jews, waving palm branches evoked feelings of uh, triumph and liberation. It was a way of welcoming, welcoming their conquering king. And the crowds were shouting, weren't they? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You can't get much clearer than that. And those words actually come straight out of Psalm 118, which has strong messianic overtones. So we have the donkey, the cloaks, the palm branches, the shouts of acclamation. Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem as a messianic king. The question is, what did the crowd expect a messianic king to do? When we go back to the Old Testament, we see that there are two aspects to this Messiah figure that Israel were eagerly anticipating. Two images, if you like. One image is of the suffering servant, and the other is of the conquering king. And if you go back through the Old Testament, you can see both those images relating to the Messiah very clearly. The suffering servant and the conquering king. Israel as a nation focused on the conquering king, but not on the suffering servant. It's like the child that wants to drive a car. It'll be great to drive a car, but you've got to wait until the time is right. You've got to get a license and have lessons and pass a test. You can't just go straight to driving the car. The crowd thought it knew best. It wanted to go straight to the conquering king. But there was no thought whatsoever for the suffering servant. Where did that bit fit in? The people thought they knew best. They wanted the wrong kind of king. They wanted the wrong kind of Messiah. And this is a mistake that the people of Israel had made before. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see that Israel wasn't even supposed to have a king because God was their king. They were supposed to be different from all the other nations who had kings ruling over them because God was their king. But they went to the prophet Samuel demanding a king like the other nations had. And the prophet Samuel warned them. He said, a king will conscript your sons into his army. He'll put you to work on his land and he'll force you to make weapons of war. He'll put your daughters to work in his palace. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and he'll give them to his attendants. He'll take the best of everything for his own use. He'll tax you heavily. He'll basically make you his slaves. In other words, you think you know what's good for you, but you don't. 1 Samuel 8, 19 to 20 says this, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's how Israel got its first king, King Saul. And if you read the, the books of the Old Testament that uh, deal with Israel's history, you will see 
that the kings were, for the most part, a terrible influence on Israel. They made a real pig's ear of it. Israel getting what it wanted was an unmitigated disaster. Uh, one of the few good kings, in spite of his personal flaws, was King David. Uh, and the Jews now expected a messianic king in the line of David who would defeat all Israel's foes and establish his kingdom. A king that would bring peace on earth from heaven. But for that to happen, the Romans would have to be dealt with. They would have to be sent packing. Jesus entering Jerusalem as king was seen by the crowds as a political event. Here is the one who will deliver us from those oppressive Romans. Their idea of a king hadn't changed since they first demanded one. A king to lead us and go out before us and to fight our battles. The Pharisees didn't recognize Jesus as any kind of a king. And they were concerned that Jesus was going to incite some kind of messianic uprising that would be violently quelled, put down by the Romans. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, you've got to put a stop to this. Shut those people up because you're going to get us into big trouble. The Romans are going to clamp down on this. Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus is saying that this is an event that needs to be celebrated. And Palm Sunday is a celebration because Jesus did enter Jerusalem as king. Just not the kind of king that Israel was expecting. Not the kind of king that Israel thought it needed. The crowd wanted a king just like the other nations, albeit a messianic version. The king they desire is no different from the king they demanded from the prophet Samuel. And we've already seen how badly wrong that went. At every stage, Jesus makes it clear that he's not that kind of a king. During the Last Supper, he spoke to, to the disciples saying, the, king of the, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Greatness through humility and service is an overarching principle of Jesus' kingdom and one that he demonstrated by dying an ignoble death on a cross, which is the uh, ultimate act of service to humanity. So the people got it wrong. They wanted a conquering warrior king, but Jesus didn't come to oust the Romans and he felt genuine grief for the path that God's people were choosing. Verses 41 to 42. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus' tears are not just a human reaction. They are the tears of a God of love. If you had only known what would bring you peace. In other words, you think you know what's best for you but you're making a terrible decision. You think you know what's best for you, but you're making a terrible decision. How often do parents feel this for their children? 
How often does God feel this for us when we wander off the path that he's set before us? Jesus is grief-stricken because he knows how all this will play out. Israel will only accept the kind of king that we've already described. Like a small, naive child, the people of Israel think they know what's good for them. In the end, the Jewish people tried to force the situation that they were hoping for, so longing for, when they welcomed Jesus as king. In AD 66, so maybe 30-odd years after Jesus coming into Jerusalem, in AD 66, there was a Jewish uprising against the Romans, uh, which elicited a supremely violent response. The Romans laid siege to Jerusalem, and in AD 70, Jerusalem was all but leveled. Hardly a building left standing. And hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children died as a result through starvation put to the death by the sword and by fire. It was a complete tragedy. Throughout history, and especially when we see Jesus entering Jerusalem, Israel thought it knew what was good for it, but the results were disastrous. But it's not just Israel. It's human beings in general. We see it on an individual, national, and global scale at every point in human history. Uh, there's a, a Latin saying, vox populi, vox dei. It means the voice of the people is the voice of God. Well, it couldn't be more wrong, that saying, could it? What a, what a misguided sentiment. Human beings have an aversion to seeing things God's way. And what we tend to do as individuals and on a national scale is we come up with an ideal and then we devise a means to achieve that ideal. We come up with an ideal, and then we devise a means to achieve that ideal. So for Israel in the first century, the ideal was a messianic king who would bring peace on earth from heaven. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That part's okay. It's a wonderful thing to hope for. However, they thought that the Messiah's kingdom would be established by overpowering and overthrowing the pagan nations, in this case, the Romans. They imagined a political and geographical kingdom. And they kind of just assumed that there would need to be some violence, there would need to be some bloodshed in order to bring this about. It doesn't matter what the ideal is. If the means of achieving it are wrong, it will be a disaster. Lots of people in the modern world have wonderful ideals world peace, human beings working in harmony with nature, the eradication of poverty, uh, equality, the flourishing of life. These are wonderful ideals. But the means to achieve these ideals are insufficient because we keep devising political solutions to solve what are essentially spiritual problems. The world needs saving from corruption, war, poverty, famine, climate change, all the rest. I don't think anyone would disagree with that, whatever their perspective. But we need to understand that humanity is in a mess because it has estranged itself from God. Humanity has rebelled against God. 
it's become separated from God and it makes decisions without any regard for God. Salvation is therefore a spiritual matter and not a political one. The solution is a return to God and Jesus has made that possible. And that's what we're looking at for the whole of Holy Week. Last week, I uh, don't know whether you're here last week, but we looked at uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He encountered Jesus and his life was radically changed. He had a total change of heart. And what the world needs is a change of heart. But that can only happen one person at a time. Hence Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, his mission wasn't to oust the Romans. His mission was to seek and save the lost. And with hindsight, we know how he achieved that. The same crowd, the same crowd that cheered Jesus into Jerusalem, later screamed for his crucifixion. Because Jesus didn't conform to their view of a messianic king. Jesus wasn't the political answer that they were looking for. And we, humanity, we think we know what's good for us. And nowadays we don't want a king, messianic or otherwise. We want an ideology, a system, a movement. We want capitalism, socialism, communism. We want a political solution to the world's problems. When what we need is in fact Jesus. Jesus entered Jerusalem as king 2,000 years ago. And as we celebrate that event, we remember that Jesus will come again to make all things new. Only then will we fully understand what is good for us. When we see Jesus' eternal kingdom being fully established, we will know with all certainty that only Jesus, the servant king, who died on a cross for our sins, can bring the peace and the perfection that we all yearn for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we recognize that this world is in a mess. We recognize that it's because humanity has turned against you, turned away from you, disregarded you. We know, Lord, that the solution is your Son, Jesus Christ. But the world continues to look for purely political solutions and we're not against politics, but we know that there's something more important. That the hearts and lives of individuals need to be changed. And we know that only Jesus can bring about that change. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that, uh, that we'll recognize this in our own lives. When we think we know what's best for us, that we'll continue to follow you wholeheartedly, even when things get tough even when you're not doing what we think you should do. We pray that we will follow you wholeheartedly, recognizing that you know best, that you have a, a, a view, a perspective that we could never have. We pray, Father, that today, as we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem as King, that we will continue to make Jesus Lord and King of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.